We are delighted to be joined by author Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Hello and welcome to Exposit the Word, Patrick. Hey David, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us, Patrick. I recently saw an interview and, and I realised that you do not drink coffee. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, that's, people are really surprised by that, especially maybe by my looks. I look yeah. like I'd really, I look like I could be a barista and I was a barista at one point. <laughs> really? And I still don't drink coffee. I actually remember I was a barista with somebody else that I was in seminary with and he was my uh, manager and he tried to make me try the new <laughs> coffee that they had gotten and I refused and he ran around the co- store trying to make me drink it, but I don't, I just don't like it. Really? I wondered if he, if he was put off because you had to keep spelling your surname every time you went to Starbucks because they didn't, they didn't know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They thought I could sell it better if I knew actually how to describe it. Yeah. I, I, I felt like I sold it fine without knowing how to describe it. I was just like, it has some hints of this and it has a little <laughs> caramel taste on the back of your tongue yeah i had no idea what i was talking about but people believed me <laughs> before we get stuck into the questions tell us a little bit about yourself patrick yeah so we are located here me and my family i've been married to hannah for 12 years and we have four children yeah three girls and a boy ranging from about 10 to 3 and so we're very busy at home and my wife uh stays at home with the kids and she does a great job and uh, so we're in Kansas City. We actually just got here uh, in at the beginning of August because mm. I was teaching at Western Seminary for six years, teaching yeah. New Testament yeah. and uh, Greek and, and things like that. And then we just transitioned here to Kansas City where I am now associate professor here. I'm teaching New Testament and biblical theology. And so, um, yeah, I grew up in a great Christian home and uh, learned the gospel early on, had some backsliding in my life through high school and beginning of college, but then the Lord really drew me back to himself through ministries like Campus Crusade uh, on a college campus. I went on staff at a church, went to seminary, and then just really kept going. I love school, and now I'm teaching the Bible, uh, which is like the most fun job ever because I get to stand up yeah. and explain the Bible to students and help people who are going to ministry. So, And then on the side, I, I really it's becoming more and more of part of my job, but I really enjoy uh, writing. I've always enjoyed writing. I actually did journalism uh in college and so i've always enjoyed writing but now i get to write about the scriptures and so i started kind of looking at matthew that was my initial study and now i've kind of gotten into acts and um i hope to not be a one-trick pony and just kind of keep <laughs> yeah. kind of hitting whatever <laughs> yeah. interests me brilliant well you've mentioned a, a number of writing projects just tell us tell us about what you have covered off yeah so i did a, i did a small book on the kingdom of god with crossway which is looking at kind of the whole storyline of scripture um and the kingdom message and that's just a little intro book for people in the church and then i did uh kind of a hermeneutics book biblical theology on matthew and how he interprets the old testament yeah. that one's called matthew disciple and scribe yeah and then um this is the i guess this is the next book that i've done i also had my dissertation published but nobody wants to read that so <laughs> it's way too expensive and uh, hard to understand um but this is a book on the Ascension that I think we're talking about today. Correct yeah. me if I'm yeah, wrong. That's um, right, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And uh, that, that was birthed out of a commentary that I'm working on at Acts. So the last two to three years, I've really been diving into Acts in, in greater depth. And the, one of the first things you hit when you come to Acts is the Ascension of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, you know, even in my, my work in my dissertation, I had noticed – a neglect of the ascension and I thought it was really important but I didn't have time to get to it and so this really gave me an opportunity to sit down and think about the ascension and really the ascension for me as I continue to think about the theology of Acts it births so much of the theology of Acts that it wasn't just that I spoke about the ascension in Acts 1 9 through 11 but mm-hmm. rather the ascension ended up being kind of this 
theological ballast, this returning point that I kept returning to in terms of Jesus Christ's reign over yeah. the whole earth and his sending his disciples uh, on mission to the ends of the earth. So um, this book was birthed out of that larger commentary, and it was also birthed actually out of a sermon because as I was studying it, um, I was tasked to preach at my church. I would yeah. preach fairly often at our church in Portland, and I constructed a sermon, and it was kind of followed this outline. So uh, I was trying to think of it in terms of how do I communicate to people or in our church, just the importance of this and what Jesus Christ is doing now. And uh, as I talked to publishers, I said I'd love to write a larger, a lot, or a shorter book on this. Yeah. And they said that'd be great as long as it's short. And it ended up being short, which is good. Did they really say it will be great, Patrick? Because I actually heard the response when you pitched this book to Lex. And what did I actually reply? <laughs> they said, "Why not?" But that, <laughs> that, that's actually that's a false narrative because he did actually say that we were at a place called Porque No, which in in Spanish means "Why not?" So uh, okay. I was doing a little play play on words there. And uh, if you watch my Cars Coffee Theology interview, you can see my supervisor didn't get that either. Yeah. And I wouldn't have got that either, but it's a very famous, well, it's, not, it's somewhat famous yeah. restaurant in Portland. And so I was playing off that. But very few people know Spanish, I guess, who read my book and they're like, oh, that doesn't sound very nice. Then they would just be like, why not? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> like, he, did, he did actually say that. They, they were excited yeah. about the book. but. But maybe some people will get the double entendre. Yeah, <laughs> that's so good. The ascension of Christ is key to the gospel, so it's vital that we get it right. What is the ascension of Christ, and why is it so important? Yeah, the ascension just refers to, refers to the rising of Christ, how Jesus gets to heaven. Yeah. Uh, and systematic theologians have spoken of it in a, a few different ways. Sometimes they speak of it. Um, visibly, it's a public event, and that's very clear in Acts 1, 9 through 11, mm -hmm. uh, that the disciples, the apostles, are watching Jesus. This isn't a hallucination. Uh, this is a real event. Uh, they're seeing him go into the sky. Um, and it, it, he, he does so bodily, so he rises into the air bodily, and he leaves the earth. That's why we no longer see Jesus upon the earth in his bodily form, because he's no longer on the earth. He's actually residing in heaven. So... Um, the Ascension is just how Jesus got to heaven, and it's uh, regularly combined, although these are two distinct things. I, I actually ended up kind of combining it in the book with yeah. what people call the session, which is the seating of Christ. Mm -hmm. So he went mm -hmm. up into the sky, into the heavens, and then he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So when I say the Ascension of Christ, I'm referring to those two as a singular script, as, as the same event. So Jesus Christ rose up into the sky and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, you touched on it a few moments ago. Why do you think the ascension of Christ is a ne neglected doctrine? Yeah, so I think it's neglected, It's and it's not neglected in every, every sphere of Christianity, no. just to be clear. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm especially speaking probably to the crowds that uh, at least I'm interacting mm. with, and so mm. there's lots of spheres of Christian circles that, that do emphasize the ascension. Uh, I'd say there's a few reasons that it's a, it's neglected. Uh, number one, it does seem like when you come to the New Testament that the Bible speaks little of it in terms of it's only narrated at two places, at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Um, and, and then in terms of our own emphasis as evangelicals, the cross has been kind of that hub center of debate in terms of what happened, what model of atonement do we follow. And because of that, it seems like the cross gets so much focus and, and really, uh, I feel like in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a re-emphasis upon the resurrection, how important mm. the resurrection is. Mm. But as I was studying this, I recognized that the ascension is distinct 
from the resurrection. So we need to speak about, yes, Christ's life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so I think just the nature of humanity is when you begin to focus on certain things, you take your focus off other things. Yeah. And so I'm trying to just return. I really, I want people to just pay attention to the ascension and look at it again. I don't think people are denying, yeah. especially in the church, denying yeah. the reality of the ascension. They just haven't articulated its significance. Yeah. And I think another reason, a part of the reason why we haven't articulated significance is because it's a it's a little unclear sometimes what the implications are like why did he need to ascend mm. why did he need to go into the heavens why couldn't have he stayed on the earth and establish his kingdom at that time and so i think part of the reason maybe we don't talk about it is we're we're not entirely sure why it was necessary and we're really looking forward for him re- to return and establish the new heavens and the new earth here yeah. upon the earth but we're, we're not sure why he left and and what what he's doing in the meantime. And so I think there's just some fuzziness sometimes about why this event happened. And it, it's, it's, a, it's also an abnormal event in terms of Jesus Christ going up yeah. into the sky. And so the resurrection, he has his body, right? He, he, he now has his body. He can be on the earth again. Yeah. But we're, we're sometimes kind of left staring into the sky saying, why did Jesus need to do this? Yeah. This is weird. Why, where did he go also? Yeah. Like, where are the heavens? Like, did, when he got out of our atmosphere, what happened yeah. to his body and where is he now? And so there's just, I think there's a lot of questions around it. Yeah, so good. So let's go there next. So what do we know about why did the ascension have to happen and what changed at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, why did the ascension need to happen? Well, it's the confirmation it of Jesus's authority. It's the mm. enthronement of Jesus. And so I, I've, many people have, distinguish between the resurrection and the ascension this way um the resurrection proclaims that jesus lives and that forever yeah. while the ascension affirms that jesus reigns and that forever yeah. and yeah. so in that time when a king or a lord or an emperor would gain all authority there would be an ascension event so this we're kind of thinking greco-roman times but even Augustus, there were stories of after he died that he ascended to the heavens. And there's an, uh, another emperor where there's a story of that. And so in that time, people understood that it was kind of the vindication of the authority of the person to then ascend to the realm of the gods at that time. And so when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he's being crowned with all authority. It is his uh, inauguration into his reign. And... And, and I think the disciples, ultimately, as they look back on that event, are recognizing that the Father is affirming what Christ has done. And yeah. so I like to say it this way. Really, Christ's work is not complete unless he does ascend. He mm-hmm. is not reigning as king over heaven and earth unless he does ascend. And so the story is really not complete until we get the ascension of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean you asked, uh, you asked something to the effect of, what change that's right, right? Yeah. so he's yeah. al- he's al- he's already the son right the son of god yeah. yeah uh who took on bodily form but there is a sense in which at his ascension he's affirmed as the god man who has accomplished all upon the earth he is the new adam the new moses the new david who has now been installed 
as the son of God in a new way because he took on bodily form. Mm. And so it's, it's not adoptionistic Christology, right? Where he's yeah, adopted yeah. as now he's the son of God before he wasn't. No, mm. but there is a new reality, a new epoch that he has entered into because he has now come to the earth. And I think, um, most of the New Testament, actually all of the New Testament affirms that there is something distinct yeah. about him being enthroned yeah. uh, as the Son of Man, the Son of God, after his uh, bodily form. Yeah, so good. So good. Tell us about the threefold office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And what do they each involve? Yeah, so um, when we think of Christ's ascension, we've been talking about how it's an endorsement, it's an authorization, it's an enthronement act. But one of the things I want to do in this book is point to the continued work of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it, the ascension not only affirms that Jesus Christ accomplished everything in the past, and he was authorized by the Father, and, and the Father looked on him and said, well done, my, my faithful servant, but rather it also includes that Jesus Christ continues to act now. Yeah. And one of the main questions that I wanted to ask was just, what is, well, what is Jesus doing now? If yeah. he ascended yeah. to the right hand of the Father, yeah. and according to the Gospel of John, it's better that he goes away. Yeah. Well, then what does he continue to do? It's not like he sits up in the heavens and is just kind of twiddling his thumbs and waiting for this thing to get over. Yeah. No, I think according to Acts and according to the rest of the New Testament, he's actually still acting. He's actually... I would even argue more active in one sense. He's not here bodily, but he is more active in another sense because he's now reigning at the right hand of the Father over heaven and earth. And so I was trying to wrap my head around, so, okay, the, how do we describe this? How do we describe what he's doing? We could just say more generally he's reigning, but that doesn't really give us, in some sense, it doesn't give us a lot of specifics in terms of what he's doing. Yeah. And so... I took that kind of threefold work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and thought if he, and others, other, it's not new to me, but if if if, if he acted uh, as the in these roles upon the earth, hmm. then he's also acting in heaven according to these roles. Yeah. And so may, maybe I'll just start with prophet, because uh, maybe the prophet one actually I've I've had a few people say that was the one I hadn't thought through as much. Yeah. Um, the priesthood and the kingship of Jesus is maybe the one we initially go to. So I'll just begin with prophet. What does a prophet do? Well, a prophet is empowered with the spirit of God. That's the f first thing. They, they receive the spirit in some sense. Now, it, 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 there's not like uh, uh, in the Old Testament, it happens in different ways. But you think about Isaiah when his mouth is cleansed with the coal, right? Mm. And, and he's, he's told to go, therefore... Because he has entered, it's really interesting, right? He actually, in some sense, enters the throne room of God and sees uh, the one seated on the throne, and his mouth is cleansed. Yeah. And then he goes to do what? Well, his mouth is cleansed to proclaim God's word. And that's, that word is both salvation and judgment in Isaiah's day. Mm -hmm. But he's also sent, and he, he, pro, he does signs and wonders. And so you have most of the prophets, not every single prophet, but most of the prophets perform signs and wonders to vindicate the authority that God has given them. And I think that's that's very clear as we see through Jesus's life. He's the one at his baptism who has the spirit. That's very clear. He's the one, Mark 1.15, who proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And he goes around, Mark 1.25 and 26, and heals. He exercises demons. He heals the sick and, and the lame. And he does all these things. So he's very clearly a prophet on the earth. Hmm. Now, what happens when he ascends to the right hand of the Father? I don't think 
his prophetic action ceases, it actually is amplified and, and, and it's multiplied because he actually sends the spirit to his followers mm -hmm. who then pro also proclaim his word. So we think about Acts 2 where we receive his spirit and now he is the ultimate prophet who is making us as his many prophets and we proclaim the word. Mm -hmm. So he sends the spirit to us and that authorizes his word. And the spirit also gives us the strength to do signs and wonders. And we see that again all throughout Acts, that the church is doing signs and wonders. So ultimately, if we kind of step back from what Christ is continuing to do as the prophet, is by his spirit, the true prophet is actually building his church upon the earth. And the last day, that church, right, heaven and earth will be yeah. reunited and that church will then uh, rule over the whole earth in the new heavens and new earth. And so I don't I want to push people towards understanding Christ isn't just sitting up in the heavens waiting around. No, he's actually in the project of building his new temple here upon the earth. And it's by his spirit that he does so as we proclaim the word and perform signs and wonders. Yeah. John writes a lot about Satan and the devil being the ruler of this world. How do we reconcile that with the sovereignty of God and Jesus being king? Yeah, so Ephesians speaks about um, the devil being the ruler of this air, right? And, yeah. and we have other texts uh, in relation to that as well, where yeah. it seems like Satan is given some authority over this earth. But I like to tie it to um, Job, at least a theology that we get from Job, in that Satan ultimately has been thrown down and cast down, and that was done on the cross. He was put to shame. And Jesus Christ has been enthroned to the right hand of the Father. I actually think in the Old Testament, um, there's some texts that speak about uh, this day star who wants to ascend to the heavens, mm -hmm. but he's not able to. Only the Son of Man is able to. And I, I tend to think, I, this is not entirely clear, but I, I tend to think that that's a story of this angelic figure, Satan, who wanted to ascend to the throne room of God mm -hmm. and be that one who sat on the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And it's only Jesus Christ who does so. And so Satan knows he's been defeated. However, he's still given some authority here upon the earth. And so you think back to a text like Psalm 110.1, um, the father says to the son, sit at my right hand. And then you have that key phrase, until I make all of your enemies a footstool. So there's a sense in which Jesus is now reigning over all, but he has not manifested that kingship here upon the earth. And, and in other words, the, the battle in many ways is over, yeah. but we're still fighting um, the skirmishes here upon the earth to finish up that that plan and so mm. although christ is reigning at the right hand of the father he hasn't manifested that reign here upon the earth so satan still has a certain sway over the earth he's still oh still able in some ways to blind people to the truth mm. but as we read in first thessalonians jesus christ will come back and he will then bring his kingdom here to the earth so yeah satan has some authority but it's all under the authority of jesus christ why exactly he's given that still uh, he's able to rule over the air well, well the, i don't think the bible necessarily tells us exactly why but mm. we can trust it's god's good plan yeah yeah i've recently heard you say that when you studied jesus's movements on earth after his resurrection there's an interesting relationship to alexander the great steps tell us a little bit about that patrick 
Yeah, so in Acts you have um, you have this narrative of actually it's it's not Jesus's steps, it's actually Paul's steps. Um, and so there's there's this point in Acts where Paul crosses the sea. Uh, he's crossing the Aegean Sea and he's going from the east to the west. So he's going yeah. from Asia Minor to Greece and Macedonia, and he's going to go to Philippi first. It's that yeah. famous narrative. I think it's in Acts 16, if I'm remembering correctly, where the Macedonian man calls and he says, uh, come over here and help us. So Paul's kind of wandering around Asia Minor trying to, trying to figure out where he's supposed to go, and the Spirit is leading him. And there's this history uh, that, that the Greeks would know where Alexander the Great is crossing these boundary markers, and he's coming and he's conquering. And I think what's happening in Paul's ministry is he's not retracing all of Alexander the Great's steps, but as he's going to these certain cities, he's definitely mimicking some of Alexander the Great's conquest, Mm. but now it's a different type of conquest because there's a new king that's seated there, and it's not that he's coming and saying, you must submit to the Greek way of life. Rather, he's saying, I'm inviting you, and the new king is actually inviting you to a new way of life. Yeah. So I want to be really careful with how we speak about this. This isn't like a conquest, like he's he's demanding that everyone submits. No, he's saying, lay down your swords. I'm coming as, as the representative of the Prince of Peace yeah. and telling you that a new kingdom is growing in the midst of the ashes of these other kingdoms. And so Rome was in power then, but Rome would then crumble as well someday. I mean, it would take a while, but the the people of God are waiting, and they're waiting for this kingdom to come to the earth. And Paul is announcing it's already here in some sense. That's that's the mystery, right, of the already not yet. Yeah. And it will be manifested here in the last day. And so as Paul, as Jesus are going out, I, I, the way I tie it to Jesus in terms of Jesus goes out proclaiming a very political message, the gospel of the kingdom, and he's actually crucified as the king of the Jews. Now, there's some debate about how political did they actually think it was, but it, it's very clear in Acts that Paul's message is also, it, it, once he gets to Greece, mm-hmm. you actually see him go to Thessalonica, and as he's proclaiming in Acts 17, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the people say to him, you're defying the decrees of Caesar. And so there's very clearly a lordship issue going on with Caesar and with Jesus, and Paul's coming and proclaiming there's a new king. Yeah. The great thing about this new king is that he's actually not challenging Caesar's throne because he already occupies the throne. And so at the end of Acts, what you see is that actually Rome and the rulers are like, this man's innocent. They keep, he keeps coming before them on trials and they're like, he, he hasn't done anything wrong. This, this person is not an insurrectionist. And that happens in Ephesus. That happens in Corinth. It happens again and again and again. So I, I love that pairing that we see in the Gospels and Acts and even the New Testament letters, that there's this subversive message that Paul proclaimed and Jesus proclaims that makes the political rulers of the world raise questions, but when they've come before trial, they recognize they're innocent. They're actually not going against anything that this, anything uh, explicitly, but at the same time, they're creating a new subversive society. And I think both those things reside in tension in all of our New Testament. So good. There's got to be a book there, Patrick. Uh, you know, you're actually speaking to the next book project that I am proposing. So I mean... <laughs> that, that's why I'm getting into the next thing. <laughs> what amazing. How much of a theology of the Ascension was birthed in the Old Testament? Yeah, so a lot of, 
our neglect of the ascension probably comes from a neglect of really the Old Testament mm. text that we, we see really a, a theology of the ascension found in Old Testament text. I think it is found in the New Testament as well. But much of their theology is birthed from the Old Testament. So there's there's some key texts like Psalm 2, Psalm 110.1, and Daniel 7, which are very clearly ascension texts that speak of what is happening when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed when you come to Acts 1, 9, 10, and 11, the ascension narrative in Acts, is that you actually don't really get much of a theology there. It's a little bit more of just a bare recording of what happened. But what I think Luke wants us to do is fill in what's happening with those Old Testament texts. So the famous text is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, you have all of these beasts who are um, – given dominion but then their dominion is removed and as Daniel's watching this vision he says he sees one like the son of man who's coming with the clouds of heaven and when you think of the clouds of heaven then you think back to Acts 1 9 through 11 yeah. you remember Jesus ascended with the clouds of heaven yeah. and then he approaches the ancient of days and was escorted before him in other words this is the conquering one and what's interesting is the son of man is just the human one unlike the beast and to him it says in Daniel 7:14 was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, so that, and this is key for Acts, every people, nation, language should serve, should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, one that will never pass away. So there's the theology of the ascension right there. The Son of Man, the truly human one, ascended with the clouds of heaven, and hint, hint, that's priestly images, yeah. images as well, yeah. the clouds of heaven, yeah. and to him is given the kingdom, a dominion, and that dominion will never go away. And why is he given that dominion? So that all the earth might serve him. And now you should be thinking, Acts, that you're supposed to go into the ends of the earth proclaiming Jesus' kingship. The reason, the reason that they have a mission in Acts is because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I actually think that that theology is not just represented in Acts, but it's represented at the end of Matthew. Yeah, you yeah. remember the Great Commission. Yeah. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, therefore, go into all nations. Like there's a therefore because all authority has been given to me. And, and a lot of people are like, well, wait a second, wait a second. He already is, is saying that all authority is given to him and he has an ascendant. Well, I think this is Matthew ways of assuming, su assuming the ascension. He's not going to narrate it. But he's actually not officially given all authority, dominion, and power as the God-man until he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And because Matthew doesn't narrate it, he alludes to that Daniel 7, 13, 14 text. Yeah. And so the theology's all there. Oh, man, so good. So good. Patrick, what was going through the minds of the disciples regarding the ascension? Yeah, that is a great question. I mean, <laughs> I... <laughs> I actually, you, you know, I don't really know. They had some questions about right before he left that they thought he was going to inaugurate the kingdom yeah. or actually consummate, yeah. sorry, the kingdom here yeah. upon the earth. So yeah. in Acts 1, 7 through 8, or Acts 1, 6, actually, he, they say, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And so there's a lot of debate about what did they understand at that point. But I think they have both understanding and misunderstanding that those two things can be paired together. They understood the nature of the kingdom but they didn't quite understand the timing of the kingdom. So Jesus answers them and he says, uh, it's not for you to know the times when the kingdom's going to come, but I want to tell you the Holy Spirit is coming and that's part of the kingdom plan as well. 
So it's right after that that Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Now, I'd like to think that they automatically just got it right then, that they're like, okay, here we go. Like, um, now it's time to get going. Yeah. Now, the problem with that view <laughs> is that the men of Gal, the, the, the angels, come to them and say, why are you looking up at yeah. heaven? So they seem, <laughs> they seem a little confused. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they seem like they don't still quite get it. And this is, I do think there's a transition well, it's it's really hard. Like, when did they start understanding? I definitely think that after Pentecost, they, they get it. Because Peter stands up and he proclaims, Ah, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord and Messiah. You must repent and believe. So at least in Acts one eleven, when they're when the angel is speaking to them, there's still some confusion. And between Acts one eleven and Acts 2, they somehow got it. Yeah. And when actually that occurred, I'm not sure, but... I tend to think it was understand like they understood what happened uh, once the spirit revealed to them what had happened, and then they probably grew in their understanding as they began to connect it to Old Testament texts and yeah. and so forth and so on. They began to meditate on it. Yeah. Um. So it kind of depends on what point of time we're thinking of. I I and I'll just raise the question here: Did they also think? I, I mentioned the the Greco-Roman, or the actually the Roman emperors yeah. who ascended to the heavens, that there's narratives of that. And, and did they think of those texts or and those myths and those legends? I, I don't know Was that how, how common was that. Mm. I, I'd have to ask a Roman historian about that. Yeah, fascinating. We know Jesus ascended into heaven. How would he return? He will return the same way, <laughs> with the clouds of heaven. That's what we get in Revelation and in First Thessalonians. So... He has an exalted body right now, according to 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. and that body um, can go to the heavens. Now, where are the heavens? Well, it doesn't tell us where the heavens are. I think it's beyond our understanding of kind of time and place. Mm. So he is existing now with his exalted body in a real place, but it's beyond our sense of what a real place is. I don't think if we just keep going up, 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 yeah. up, up, we'll find heaven. <laughs> yeah. um, that's not how it's described. But he will return, and he will still have that exalted body, and he will return with the clouds of heaven. What I love about First and Second Thessalonians is that they use this term parousia, which is the coming of the king. After a king had uh, vanquished the enemies, after a king had won the battles, they would return to the city, and people would line up on the streets, and there would be a triumph of a return. And it's kind of like when our sports teams win the Super Bowl or um, win your uh, football tournaments over there or whatever it is. Yeah, At yeah. least here, people line the streets and they cheer and they say, "This, is, these are our conquerors. In the same way, Jesus returns on the clouds of heaven. And I think the clouds of heaven are symbolizing that, yes, he is the priest, but also he's the one who's coming to bring heaven to earth. So he's the king of heaven, ultimately bringing heaven to earth. No kingdom of this earth can uh, challenge the king of heaven and I think that's very clear yeah. in Revelation when they describe the battles the battles are over before they describe them it's like yeah. he's coming and he already has blood on his garment yeah. and I think that blood is symbolizing his his power is so overwhelming it's like there's there's no even no point of the battle yeah it's just over before it begins yeah and so I, I think I was getting to your question there and I <laughs> yeah. people ask me is that going to be physical and visible yes Yes, I think it is, because in Acts 1, 9 through 11, they see him go, and he, they say, you're going to return in the same way. 
Yeah. The angels do. Now, how are we all going to see that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But the scriptures sure seem to affirm it. And I believe that God who created our eyes and who created the skies can make it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Paul speaks about being seated with Christ. What does that mean and what does that look like? Yeah, in Ephesians and Colossians, mm. he speaks how we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yeah. And uh, at least for me and you right now, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm <laughs> seated in the yeah. heavens. Yeah. I'm seated here in Kansas City in a podcast studio. <laughs> And we're talking on Skype. And so, you know, in the in the heavens, it would be nice. We might not even have to log into Skype. Maybe we could just <laughs> talk across the universe or something. Yeah. Um, so obviously there, there's some tension here we have to think about because we're, we're seated physically here. But what I think he's saying is um, we're seated with Christ in that what has happened to Christ has happened to us because we have been united with Christ. Mm. Here's the key doctrine of mm. union with Christ. Mm. Because... Jesus Christ is our head and we are his body. What happens to him has happened to us, which means we are victorious with him. Mm. We are safe in him. I mean, this is Romans 8. This is um, because Jesus has been glorified. We will be glorified, yes, but we are also glorified in some sense now. And so the victory of Christ is our victory because we are in him. And that is mysterious language, right? That mm -hmm. we are in him. Yeah. But throughout the New Testament, it affirms that what has happened to Christ has happened to us. So how does that affect us? Well, um, at least tomorrow, and let me apply it to our current political climate. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow is election day <laughs> in yeah, America, yeah. Um, presidential election day. And we can remember that no matter what happens, mm -hmm. um, we are reigning with Christ already. And mm -hmm. so that gives us great hope. That gives us great confidence. We can remember that though they can destroy whoever it is, destroy our bodies, they can never take away our soul. They yeah. can never take away the victory that Christ has won. Yeah. And you think back to the early church and the martyrs. This is the hope that they held on to. This mm -hmm. is why they could go before the lions and before the sword and confess Christ and say, you can take nothing away from me. Why? Because they are already seated in the heavens. Yeah. And that can't be taken away from us. Yeah, so good. How should the ascension influence the way that we pray and the way that we worship? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that really affected me personally as I studied this, and this is not anything new, I just really put my eyes on it again mm. and thought about it. Mm. Um, as we pray, we can remember that we have the high priest mm. who is going before the Father in the heavens, the, the, the temple in heaven, and he is interceding for us. And so that, you think about texts like Romans 8 and then all of Hebrews, really. Mm -hmm. He's the one who's making intercession for us. And when you think about it, it's the Son making intercession before the Father, and he is representing us as our high priest and saying, these are my people, and I am not ashamed of my people. And the Father will listen to the Son. Hmm. The Father will listen to the Son. And as the Son continues to intercede for us, that should give us great hope and confidence that as we speak to the Father, we speak to the Father through the Son. And the Son, even when we don't have words to say, will plead with us before the Father. So as we sin, the, Father, the Son presents his blood before the Father and says, they are cleansed by my blood, and the Father accepts that. Mm -hmm. And as we plead with uh, the Father, 
to rescue us or to give us boldness or to make our words comprehensible to those that we're sharing the gospel with. The Son is pleased with those requests, and He brings those requests before the Father. And and I just found that to be hugely comforting because I know that there's, if we could put it this way, there's a smile on the Father's face as He listens to the requests of the Son as the Son represents His people. And and to me, that, that just made me want to pray all the more yeah. because I think sometimes we feel like, and we know this isn't true, but we feel like we're bothering the Father <laughs> as yeah. we pray, yeah. or that He's not listening to us, yeah. or that this is a waste of time. But then you think actually what the priest would do in the Old Testament, how there was that one day where the high priest would go before the Father uh, into the temple, into the tabernacle, and represent the people. And now we can have, according to Hebrews, all the more confidence because we have the one standing for us yeah. and it is a throne room of grace not yeah. a judgment for yeah. us any longer yeah so good with all of your in-depth studies have you ever changed your theological position on anything over the years oh man um yeah i have i mean some of it has just been ironing out things that maybe yeah. i i would say differently now mm. even before this i was i don't know if i'd know how i describe what changed at the ascension like what what shifted there so even that beginning question i don't say i changed there yeah um i'm trying to think of something that i've changed my view on more recently um you know many of the things that i've changed my view on are some, sometimes more of like details in the text so yeah. one of the texts let's just relate to the ascension that i've always struggled over is ephesians 4 when jesus descends and then he ascends mm. and so one of the things that over over time that i've been more convinced of is Jesus's descent to Sheol or to the realm of the dead, not yeah. to hell. Yeah. And so initially in my Christian life, I was taught that Jesus did not descend to hell because that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But as I studied it more, I recognized there's a difference between Sheol and the realm of the dead and hell. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there's some New Testament evidence, more than I actually realized, that Jesus descended to the realm of the dead and proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison at the time. That's also mm -hmm. 1 Peter 3. And then in Ephesians 4, another piece that I actually flip-flopped flip on <laughs> is when Jesus ascended, what did he do after leaving the realm of the dead? Did he bring up the Old Testament saints to the right hand of the Father? Mm. Or are the captives that he's leading up to the <laughs> – we're getting uh, really detailed now – to the third <laughs> heaven are those that he's conquered? And so as he's ascending, he's bringing captives captive. And are those captives the Old Testament saints – the good people or are they the spirits in prison mm. who are actually um the fallen angels and i flip-flopped on that right now I, I lean towards it being fallen angels that he's bringing and actually imprisoning in a new sense based on i think it's psalm 68 is the background there yeah I, it might it might be 64 yeah um and so those are a few things that i've kind of uh, maybe shifted on slightly i'd also say another piece that's been helpful for me is i um I don't think I recognize the sociological reality of justification until I read some of the new perspective. And I don't I wouldn't accept all of the new perspective on Paul, mm -hmm. but I think they actually helpfully put the light on the Jew and Gentile issue mm -hmm. with the issue of justification, recognizing it's both 
a salvation issue mm-hmm. you're made right before god and it's a table fellowship issue mm-hmm. so i tend to think you can kind of have both and yeah. and that the first kind of proponents of the new perspective were right in what they were affirming and wrong in what they were denying mm-hmm. and you can come back along with the old perspective on paul and say no we can affirm both of these and actually put the priority on our relationship with God, but then actually push towards relationship with one another as yeah. well. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's a shift, but it, it was just a helpful reality that was pointed out to yeah. me. Yeah, interesting. Patrick, in 150 interviews, you're the first person to ever say the word flip-flop. Congratulations. <laughs> what did I say flip-flop on? I don't even remember. I don't know, but it was brilliant. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> is, is that a... a, 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 a Americanized statement, uh, English statement. No, well, we we have we have flip flops, but they're like Crocs. Do you have Crocs over there? We wear flip flops. We do have Crocs. Yeah, yeah. And we have flip flops as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, Patrick. Last question: What have been some of your favorite resources that have helped you grow in your faith? Yeah, I, the favorite resources that have helped me grow in my faith. Um, I was re- really impacted by J.A. Packer's Knowing God. Oh uh, yeah. And A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. Is that the name of it? Okay. Yeah. 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 I think A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. When I was first getting kind of get reading into Christian uh, works, I found those hugely helpful. Um, all of J.I. Packer's work is it Quest for Godliness was also really helpful as well. Um, and so those are some of the books that I, I kind of continually return to. Um, C.S. Lewis, Fear Christianity, is another one of my favorites. Um, th- those have been hugely encouraging to me in my own Christian walk. Fantastic. So those are a few that I'd mention. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, great stuff, Patrick. We're going to put links to your, your books um, in the description below. You're on Twitter as well, aren't you? I'll put a link to your Twitter profile. Can you remember what your handle is off by hand? Uh, PJ Schreiner, there's a little like dash underneath uh, between PJ and Schreiner. I don't even remember what it's called. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll put, a li- we'll put a link in the description below as well. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. It was fun.